I have been telling you guys through Facebook and through some other messages that I have never been more excited about a series than I am what we're beginning today. And so you're here on a great day as we start this journey through this letter of James. And so we're going to be going verse by verse. Um, That doesn't mean one verse per week, but that means that we will be covering the entire letter of James. Today we're going to be looking at a little bit of context, a little bit of background. We're going to learn about the author, the recipients, and a little bit about the historical setting of what was going on during this time and the theme of the letter. And then next week we're really going to dig in and start going deep. Um, I can remember a while back, this, this was actually a long time ago, although it could have been yesterday, that I went to, I went to a doctor for whatever reason. I never go to the doctor, but I went to the doctor. I can't even remember why, you know, I, I, there was something going on. So I went to the doctor and the doctor had me step up on the scale. Have you been there? Okay. So I stepped up on the scale and she says my weight and I go, no, no, that can't be right. And she, and I argue with the doctor about the weight that's on the scale. And, and so there was this moment of reality where I was slapped in the face with, with, what was truly going on in my life. And it caused me to make some adjustments in my life, at least for a short period of time. <laughs> Guys, that is, what, that is what this letter of James is doing for me as I am diving into the study. It is slapping me in the face over and over again with the reality of who I am and this journey of being a Christ follower and where I fall so, so short of that and that I need to make some changes in my life. And so I hope that it'll do the same for you. If you look at our bookshelf here, um, James is right down here. It's called one of the other letters in the New Testament. So James is down here. And in addition to James, now I want you to turn to the book of James and park right there, okay? And it's, it's important as we go through this study of James that you bring your Bibles and you follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in one of the chairs near you, and you're welcome to take that home with you. You're welcome to highlight in it, write in it, take it home, put your name in it. That is a gift from us. So whether you bring one of those copies of the Bible where you can turn the pages or an electronic version on your phone or your iPad, none of that matters to me. Just bring your Bible. It is important that you follow along, and it's important that you know that these ideas aren't coming from your preacher. These ideas are coming inspired by the Holy Spirit and through the author of James. And I want you to do that. That is so important. These aren't, these aren't my ideas. These aren't, these aren't the new fangled, hey, 10 steps to a growing church that I read in some article recently. This is from God's word and it is important that you're following along. So park in James, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But we are going to look at a couple of other letters, a couple of other historical events that give us context that we're going to look at today. So we're going to be in Corinthians and we're going to look at an event that happened there. We're going to be in the book of Acts and we're going to look at a historic event there that just gives us a little bit of context. We're going to look at the gospel of Mark for one little passage that kind of tells us a little something about the author of this letter. So we're going to be parked in James, but we're going to pull in a couple of other things. And I gave you all of those references in your outline. So follow along, take notes in that outline. By the end of this series, you are going to have a personalized commentary on what God is saying to you 
if you take it seriously and you make notes on these outlines and keep them and, and uh, go home and pray over them, there will be things in your notes that you didn't hear from me. There will be things in your notes that God puts on your heart and how exciting it would be to hear from you later on about things that, you know, as you, as you study through this letter and these notes and everything. So I, I encouraged you to read through the letter of James in one setting. And, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I hope that you took time to do that. If you didn't take time to do that, it's okay. Do it this week, okay? Next week is when we're really, really digging in. Sit down and do that. because. And here's why I ask you to do that. In, in the New Testament, if you were in one of these churches and, uh, and, and one of these letters came to you, what you would do is you would gather together as a church. You'd probably share a meal. There would be some prayer time. There would be some singing. And then the preacher would get up and say, hey, we got a letter from James, man. This is exciting. Or we got a letter from Paul, and, and I'm going to share that with you. And they would sit and they would read it in one setting without commentary. They would just read it. And the people were so hungry for God's word that they would sit there and they would know that this was a letter inspired by God written through the hand of his servant. And they were so excited to hear that, that they would sit there and they would listen to it in one setting. And then I would imagine, as we remember from the days of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Ezra getting up and reading, they would kind of break into small groups after that where they would begin to talk about God's word and talk about the things that they heard and and begin to explain it in in even more depth and and application. And so that's what I want you to do. I want you to, to listen to one of, the, one of the apps on your phone. You know, version is a great app where you can pull up the Bible and, and many of the translations there you can listen to. And, and so just listen to it being read or sit and read it yourself. But do that in one setting. It'll take you 14 or 15 minutes to do that. Okay, that's all it'll take. So do that this week. That will be, that will be really awesome. And today we're going to look at a little bit of background. And I hope that you will be inspired and encouraged to really dive into this. So I'm very excited about it. Now, if I were to tell you, and I'm setting you up here, so just be ready for that. If I were to tell you, hey, turn in your Bibles to the beginning of the New Testament, where would you turn? Okay, and you know what? That would be okay because that is very, very likely what I would have meant. But just technically speaking, Matthew chronologically is not the first letter that we have in the New Testament. Do you know what the first letter is? James. And so, guys, it is so significant that we are studying this as a church family. This is the beginning of the New Testament. This is the first letter that was circulated among among churches to to begin to listen to the written, you know, God's word being written down in the New Testament. They had Old Testament scriptures, but here is the beginning of the New Testament, written before any of the other New Testament books. And that is really exciting. So, in your notes, the letter of James is chronologically the first of the New Testament. That is so significant. I hope that that makes you want to learn about this letter. God chose these words to be the first words that were written down and inspired by the Holy Spirit and circulated among, among churches and then to be in our New Testaments today. Very significant. And then also in your notes, this letter was written in A.D. somewhere between 44 and 49. This was just over a decade after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so look at the timing of this letter. It's not hundreds of years later where someone's interviewing a bunch of witnesses and they're going back and they're writing things down. Now we have... We have history and we have New Testament letters that are that, that were not written by eyewitnesses, but were written by people who 
interviewed eyewitnesses, and that's great. God inspired it all. But in this case, this is a guy that was right there. This is a guy that was living it. And this is the first letter, very, very fresh in history after the, the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we know that it was between the years of 44 and 49 again, that I think is very significant, is that we know about in the year 44 is when persecution broke out in the church. We know that this letter was written after that, and you'll hear more about how we know that as we go into the letter. And we also know that it happened before 49 because there was an event in in the year of 49 that happened that was called the Jerusalem Council or the Council at Jerusalem. And, And that is where a bunch of church leaders came together to make some very important decisions. And we read about that in the book of Acts, and I'm going to make a reference to that in a minute. But those are two events that we know that this letter was written between. And so that helps us say, you know, that we know it was the earliest letter in the New Testament. So very significant after the persecution broke out, but before the council at Jerusalem. The reason we know that it was before the council at Jerusalem is because it makes no reference to that council. And there would have been good reason to reference that if it had happened after that. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to the beginning of the New Testament. The book of James. Okay, so turn. I'll probably never say that again because if I say that, I'm not trying to trick you. Turn to Matthew, but today, humor me and turn to the book of James. And so in James chapter 1 and verse 1, we begin this letter, and here's what we read James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. That's as far as we're going to go today, okay? I told you, verse by verse through the Bible. Now, next week we'll cover more than one verse. But this is as far as we're going in James today because we're going to talk about the author, we're going to talk about the recipients, and a little bit about the theme. Now, in the New Testament, there are four men by the name of James that are mentioned in the New Testament. Two of them are very vague, just mentions. Hey, James was the father of this other guy. And so we know that neither of them were the authors of this letter. One of them is the most popular James in the New Testament. And do you know who that is? Who who would you say is the most popular? Yeah, John's brother, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder and all of that. One of the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John spent a lot of time with Jesus. One of the great evangelists of his time. We know that this letter was not written by that James because he was dead by the time that this was written. He was dead by the time that that this persecution had scattered the Christians and everything. And so we know that it wasn't him. And so the other James that is mentioned in the Bible, and this is who the author of this letter is, is James, the brother of Jesus. And how significant is that? Isn't that exciting that we're going to read the first letter of the New Testament and it was written by the brother of Jesus. So number one in your notes, this letter is from James, the brother of Jesus. Now technically the half-brother, I don't usually use terms like half-brother, half-sister, stepdad, stepmom. I just, that's not necessarily in my vocabulary. Family's family to me. But technically speaking, it is the half-brother of Jesus. And I'll explain why that was. Um, Because they had the same, they had the same mother whose name was Mary but uh, James would have been fathered by Joseph, and Jesus was the miraculous virgin birth, the Christmas story, the Holy Spirit. You know, she was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so, so they had never known each other in that kind of intimate way until after the birth of Jesus, and then they had a bunch of other kids that are mentioned in the New Testament, okay? James was, was probably the oldest of those kids. I'm, I'm sure he was the oldest of those kids, because when they're mentioned, James is mentioned first, and that would have been very, uh, very telling of that time that you would mention the oldest sibling first. And so James, you know, the brother of Jesus. Now, this is really significant that, that it's the brother of Jesus that writes this. And let me tell you why. 
the apostles spent three years with Jesus, right? The 12 that he chose, and there were other disciples. So they spent three years of Jesus when he called them and said, hey, come be a follower of mine. I'll make you fishers of men. You know, Come and follow me. You know, Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more, but come with me. And, and so he, he had this crowd of people that gathered around him. There were 12 that were really close. There were three that were really, really, really close. And so they spent about three years with Jesus' public ministry where he traveled from town to town and he taught, and then he would spend time with them one-on-one and then he would go up into the mountains somewhere quiet to pray and then he'd come back down and say, hey, wake up, can't you stay awake? You know, and, then he'd, and then he would talk and he would teach them some more. They spent about three years face-to-face listening to the teachings of Jesus. And something that we know is that on the deepest level, they didn't understand what he was teaching until after the resurrection of Jesus. When he talked about, you know, I'm, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be a sacrifice, my life's going to be poured out, but then on the third day I'll raise again. They didn't get that because they were so shocked by the death of Jesus, by the crucifixion, that we know they didn't understand his teaching until later. Okay, And they had spent three years with him. Now let me tell you something interesting about James, the brother of Jesus. He spent about 30 years with Jesus. And I have to assume that there were times where Jesus sat around and they talked about spiritual things. I mean, you know that when Jesus was, was young, that, that he was, you know, he separated from his family. This is one of the great stories, you know, of the adolescence of Jesus, really the only story of the adolescence of Jesus. But he separated from his family. They were traveling. They're like, oh, no, where's Jesus? We've lost, oh, we've lost God's son. We've lost the Messiah. You know, they had to freak out a little. And so they start hunting for him. And I would say that, that because Jesus was about 12 years old, that the oldest brother was there, right? He remembers this event. He was younger, but he would have been there. Where did they find Jesus? And the temple, what was he doing? He was teaching. He was teaching the, he was teaching the teachers in the temple. And the Bible even says that they were in awe at the, the teaching of this young man and the, the, the authority that he spoke with. So it was so exciting. And James had to be there when they found him in the temple or, or he would have certainly heard about it. He was alive by then, I would, I would certainly imagine. And so here's James. He's been around Jesus for 30 years. He's heard Jesus talk about spiritual things. But did he believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, sent from heaven? No. The Bible clearly tells us that he didn't believe it. None of Jesus' brothers and sisters believed it. In fact, there is this, this incredible verse here. Now, I've, I've asked you this before. I've heard other preachers say it. It's not original with me. But do, if, do you have an older brother or sister? A lot of you do. What would they have to do to convince you that they were the Messiah? <laughs> right? And so we don't have to beat James up too much, right? What did you say? Now tell me later. Tell me later. And, and so we don't have to beat him up too much because we know what it's like to grow up with somebody. And here's James. Here's James, the young man that said things like, you know, to his teacher, I, I don't care if Jesus got straight A's. Give me a break, you know. Here's James, the guy that said to his mom, why, don't, why doesn't Jesus ever get a spanking? Because, you know, Jesus never did anything wrong. He never got a spanking. And so this is the young man that grew up with Jesus as his older brother. He will never live up to Jesus. You know, he will always be in the shadow of Jesus. But he grew up here, and he never believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Here's the passage from Mark that it's not on the screen, but it's referenced in your notes. And basically in Mark 3.21, what's going on here 
is that Jesus' teaching, his public ministry has begun. He began to tell people that he was the Messiah sent from God. He's going to be the sacrifice for, for their sins. He's going to reconcile their relationship to a holy God. And what we read in Mark 3.21 is that when his family heard this, when Jesus' brothers and sisters heard the kinds of teaching that he was doing, they came to where Jesus was in this house and they knocked on the door and they said, send him out here. And the Bible says in Mark 3.21, when his family heard this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. And so you can fill in that blank. Jesus' family thought that he was crazy. Just like you would if your sister said, I'm God. Okay? We need to get you to a doctor. I mean, I love you and you're wonderful, but we need to get you to a doctor. And that's what these guys were doing. They came, they were going to take Jesus away. Hey, sorry, sorry for the trouble. Whew, you know, we're, we got it from here. Come on, Jesus. Man, what happened? And they're going to take him to a doctor, and they're going to get him checked out. They're going to have him committed or something. They thought he was crazy. They did not believe that he was the Messiah. Something happened. Something happened to James, the brother of Jesus, the one that writes this letter, that changed him forever. Because James goes from unbelief to total belief. James goes from from thinking that his brother was crazy to actually dying for his faith in his brother as the Messiah. There's a historian from the first century by the name of Josephus. He's never mentioned in scripture, but he has all kinds of historical writings and you can look it up and it's on my bookshelf if you want to borrow it. But Josephus records that when James, the brother of Jesus, died, that he was taken by an angry mob because he would, not, he would not recount that Jesus was the Messiah. He was preaching and teaching about Jesus, the good news about Jesus, and that you can be forgiven of your sins because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He was taken by an angry mob up to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, and because he would not recount the things that he was saying, he was thrown off the temple. They wanted to kill him. They threw him off the temple, and so he falls. I don't know how high it was, but he falls, and he lands there, and he's all crippled up, but he didn't die. And so he begins to pray for them. And while he's praying for them, one of them picked up a club and bashed his brains in and killed him. This is the brother of Jesus that thought Jesus was crazy. This is the brother of Jesus that wanted to have him committed and made apologies. I'm sorry he's teaching. I'm sorry he's saying this. Woo, don't know what got into him. This is the brother of Jesus that had grown up probably angry and how perfect his older brother was. He's out of his mind. But something happened that changed him from unbelief to belief. Do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? I heard someone say it. Who said it? What happened? Jesus said he was going to die and he died. Jesus said three days later he's going to come back to life, and he did. And then he appeared to many people, and one of them that is mentioned in Scripture, what's the Scripture there? Um, is 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that's referenced there. He appeared to his brother James. The resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to his brother James and spent time with him. And so if you want to convince people that you're the Son of God, that you are God, that you are the Messiah die, come back to life, and then appear to them and sit down and eat some fish together. And that's what Jesus did. And he did that for his brother James. One author that I, that I read this past week said this. 
and you can write this in your notes, Jesus appeared to those who needed to see him the most. Jesus appeared face to face with those that needed to see him the most. And just as a side note, I want to tell you, he'll do the same for you. I'm not saying that he will physically, miraculously appear. But if you are seeking him, he will will show you. He will appear to you in some way in your heart, giving you peace when, when, the, when, when there's no reason to have peace, giving you comfort when there's no reason to have comfort, giving you an attitude that, that, is, that is way above and beyond the attitude of the world when they're in terrible circumstances. That's what this letter of James is all about. So he appeared to James. And then another statement here that you can fill in your blanks. Something else that we learn about the author is that James became a primary leader in the church in Jerusalem. He became a primary leader in that church. So here's what's going on, and, and, and I'm going to take you to this little moment of history from the book of Acts. Acts 15, verses 13 through 19, that's referenced in your notes. So here's what's going on. Persecution breaks out. The Christians that are all in Jerusalem, right? I mean, on the day of Pentecost, Peter goes out and he preaches. Um, Jesus was the Messiah. God sent him. You killed him. You better say you're sorry. And thousands of them responded, right? Thousands of them responded. And, and, and so thousands of them become followers of Jesus. And then just days later, thousands more respond. And then the Bible tells us that they continued to preach and teach about Jesus and God was, was adding to their numbers daily. And so I would say that by the time this persecution breaks out, conservatively speaking, there, there was probably between 18 and 21,000 followers of Jesus in this capital city of Jerusalem. That's the church where James is, okay? And James becomes a primary leader in that Jerusalem church. Persecution breaks out. These Christians are are being killed, they're being hunted down, they're being thrown into jail, they're being forced to to deny that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he died for their sins. Many of them are not recounting that, and so they're being killed. And so they scatter, they run, they pack their bags and they leave. Satan thinks that he's won a great victory here. He thinks that he, he's broken up the church. They had 20,000 people in the church in Jerusalem, and now I've scattered them. I've sent them running. But you know what they do as they go? They preach and teach about Jesus Christ everywhere that they go. It's amazing. It's this beautiful thing that happens. And what, what we read in Acts 15, 13 through 19 is that as they go and they're preaching and teaching and these other little churches begin to pop up in all of these, really all over the known world of that time, everywhere that they could have traveled, there are little churches. But these are churches that are kind of, you know, it's, it's these Jews that became Christ followers in Jerusalem that have traveled here and they're living among Gentiles. That basically just means anybody that's not a Jew. And so we, we've got churches now of Jews and Gentiles. And there begins to be this tension between these two groups because the Jews still want all of the Gentiles to convert to Judaism, to, to begin to follow all of these Old Testament rituals and Old Testament laws and, and all of these, these customs from their heritage. And the Gentiles don't want to do that especially one in particular. And so as, as time goes on, there's all of this tension going on. And so they call a council at the church in Jerusalem. And so the apostles are there, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 15 that James is there, the brother of Jesus. 
And so he's there, and they come together, and they begin to listen to all of the testimonies of the great things that, that's happening in all these churches where Gentiles are becoming Christians. They're becoming followers of Jesus Christ, and, and all of the wonderful things that are happening, the Holy Spirit is on them, and, and they, you know, they are sincere, and, and all these great, wonderful things are happening. And, and, and then the Jews, some of the Jews are saying, but they need to, they need to convert. They need to do, follow these customs. And then the, the marvelous thing that we read here is that James is actually presiding over this meeting. James is in charge of the meeting. The apostles are there. Other evangelists are there. Many of the, the early followers of Jesus and eyewitnesses are there. And James is in charge of the meeting. One of the, one of the authors that I read this week said that James was basically the senior minister, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He wasn't an apostle. He was an elder in the church, but he was kind of the primary teacher in that church. And so he was sort of the senior minister of the church. And so he's presiding over this meeting, and he's listening to all these things. And so a couple of the phrases that come out of this passage that I've referenced is that all these people talk and they give testimony. And then when they had finished, James spoke up. And then he, he kind of gives his judgment. And he says, okay, here's, here's what I think we should do. And then at the end of that passage in verse 19, he says, it is my judgment. It is my judgment. Here's what we're going to do, guys. Okay, I've listened to everybody. I've been praying about this, you know, and God's put this on my heart. Here's what we're going to do about it. And he basically says, tell the Jews not to make it more difficult for the Gentiles to become followers of Jesus. They don't have to follow all those customs. Tell the Jews, don't make it more difficult for the Gentiles than it already is. And then he says, and tell the Gentiles, don't be disrespectful to the customs of the Jews. So you don't have to follow these customs, but you don't have to rub it in their face. You don't have to, you don't have to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols in front of them. You, know, you don't have to do those things that will be offensive to them. And so they write this letter. James is probably the author of this letter that goes out to all of these churches and says, hey, here's what we've decided. Here's how we think that you guys can be unified and come together as followers of Jesus. And it was just kind of amazing to me that we see James, the brother of Jesus, the one that denied that Jesus, the one that didn't believe or have any kind of faith in Jesus, is now presiding over this church in Jerusalem, the first church in the world in Jerusalem. So this letter is written from, the, from James, the brother of Jesus, the one who was a witness of the resurrected Jesus, the one who had experienced a life change and the one that was a primary leader in the church in Jerusalem, the number two in your notes, this letter is to the scattered Christians. It's to the scattered Christians. He, he addresses it to the 12 tribes, right? That was, that was an Old Testament phrase that comes up all the time, and it basically just means all of, the, all of the followers. Now, at this point in history, it's not just saying ethnically all of the Jews. It's, it's, it's everybody that has become a follower of Jesus because we're all adopted into God's family, and so... This letter is to the scattered Christians, but it is important to note the letter is to Christians. It's not an evangelistic letter to say, you know, here's, here's how to go evangelize. Here's how to go win the lost people. No, this is a letter to Christians, and it's to the Christians that were a part of the Jerusalem church that had scattered. It's a part of the Christians that were a part of the Jerusalem church that had scattered, that had, that had won other people to have faith in Jesus. So it's this amazing thing. He's writing to his own flock, the people that were at one time under his own care, that had been persecuted, that have scattered, and then also to those who came to know Jesus Christ as Savior through their ministry. He's talking to missionaries here, right? He's preaching to missionaries, those that have left carrying the message of Jesus. The next 
Fill in the blank in your notes is that persecution began with the stoning of Stephen. That story is in Acts chapter 8. Dr. Eubanks, who did a great job preaching last weekend, referenced this, if you remember, the stoning of Stephen. He he kept preaching about Jesus. They got so angry at him about preaching at Jesus that they began to throw rocks at him. They stoned him until he died. But right before he died, Jesus appeared to him. The the heavens split open, and he could see Jesus. And he prayed for those that were killing him, saying, you know, basically, basically the prayer that Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he prayed for those that were killing him. That is recorded in Acts chapter 8. But this persecution in the church began with the stoning of Jesus. And we read in verses 1 through 3 that on that day, on the very day that Stephen was killed, the first martyr, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So on that very day, the persecution broke out. It was like an orchestrated shock and awe event that they, were, they, were, they wanted to put an end to this movement. We killed Stephen. We're going to kill a bunch of people. We're going to scare them to death. We're going to make them deny their faith in Jesus. And our spiritual enemy, he meant to destroy the church, but God used that moment in history to grow the church across the known world of that time. The next blank in your outline is that Christians carried the good news of Jesus everywhere they went. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, we read that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. What a great story. Satan tries to squash the church, but instead it spreads to people all over the world. It was amazing everywhere that they went. Now their persecution didn't end. They were scattered, and even when they were scattered, the persecution followed them wherever they went, but it did not slow down the message. And this is basically the problem that I have with a lot of preachers today that preach this this health and wealth kind of thing. You know, if you become a follower of Jesus, you know, your life's going to be great. If you send me $100, then God's going to bless you and, and, you know, you'll be healthy and he'll heal you and, and you won't have any troubles. And I mean, we hear that kind of message all the time today and it's just not true. It's not true. God never promises that we will have a life free from hardship but he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. He promises that in the midst of our terrible circumstances, that he will be a presence in our life. And then he even promises that he can can do a miracle to help something good come from that. But he never promises us a life free from troubles. And that's certainly true in this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit and written through James. Paul reminds us of this truth when he was thrown into prison. He's in prison in Rome awaiting his execution. And from that dark, damp cell, he writes the letter to the church in Philippians. And this is known as the letter of joy. And it was written in the most terrible of circumstances. And he begins the third chapter of this Philippian letter with the words, Rejoice in the Lord. And then the whole letter is all about rejoicing in your relationship with God. Because worldly circumstances can't do anything to affect your relationship with God. So this letter is written by James, the brother of Jesus. This letter is written to the scattered Christians. And number three in your notes, this letter is an opportunity for self-evaluation. This letter is an opportunity for self-evaluation. 
a lot of people have a different different takes on the letter of James. Some people say it's sort of the Proverbs of the New Testament. You know, if you read Proverbs in the Old Testament, it's all of these short, disconnected statements of wisdom that you can read. And, and, and it's really great, and you should read Proverbs. James isn't that. James is, is short sections of wisdom, but they're not unrelated. So it's different than that. Other people say James is sort of a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus Christ himself, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's sort of a commentary on that where he takes the principles and the points from the Sermon on the Mount and he goes into more depth and he helps make application in people's lives. I want to I say that, you know, I certainly think that's true. But what I want you to take today, what I want you to take today is that the letter of James is an opportunity for self-evaluation. It's you stepping up on the scale in the doctor's office. It's, it's you looking into the mirror and finding you know, celery between your teeth. I mean, it's, it's, it's you coming face to face with all kinds of realities that might be uncomfortable for you. And as we go through this journey together and you look at this guide and this measurement, I, I, I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that God loves you. And I want you to know that as we go through this, there are going to be moments where it's uncomfortable, where James kind of gets in our grill. And I just want you to be following along in your Bible so that you know he said it, not me, okay? Get mad at James. Don't get mad at Frank. Oh, I probably skipped that. Um, yeah, Philippians 3.1 is the reference there where Paul is in prison and he says his words, Rejoice in the Lord. And the phrase is, difficulties in life are reminders and opportunities to rejoice. And so when we have these difficulties and we take that as an opportunity to say, you know what, it cannot affect my relationship with Jesus Christ. It cannot affect, you know, you can kill me. You can hit me with rocks until I'm dead, but you cannot ever affect my eternity. You cannot stop God from loving me. It becomes an opportunity to rejoice no matter how difficult the circumstances come. Thank you for, thank you for taking me back where I had passed right on. So number three is the letter is an opportunity for self-evaluation. And then the next blank there is that James reveals to us that God is the giver of everything good. You know, And, and what was the greatest gift of all? The greatest gift that's ever been given. Yeah, Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that, so that we can be forgiven of our sins. He's a, he's a sacrifice for our sins. And James reminds us, God is the giver of everything good, everything in your life that is good. He's the giver of salvation itself. In James 1.17, we read, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God loves you. He has always loved you. He does not change like shifting shadows. He will always love you. And he loves you too much to let you stay the same. He wants you to grow and to change. And he wants to lead you into the greatest life ever that will not be free from troubles. But your joy will surpass the circumstances in your life. The next fill in the blank is that James identifies that the pathway to our best life is through obedience to God. This is the uncomfortable part. 
James says you can have the greatest life that you could ever imagine, but you're going to have that life by being obedient to the things that God tells us to do, by being obedient to God's word and the principles in God's word. You know, we could go through all kinds of a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, right? There's kind of a top 10 list in the Old Testament that you're familiar with. It's all of the do's and all of the don'ts. And James has a lot of that in it. James has a bunch of do's and don'ts, but God doesn't give us this, these lists of, of do's and don'ts to try to rob us of any kind of joy. It's just the opposite. He wants to protect us from evil. He wants to provide for us real joy, real, real peace, and real fulfillment. Not the kind of joy that comes from a fleeting moment, but then leads to guilt and shame. God's not looking for some kind of begrudging scared obedience where you're like, well, God said to do that. I better do it. Or, you know, he'll, he'll send lightning from heaven or he'll get me or he'll make somebody sick. You know, God will punish me. God's not looking. How would God be glorified in that? He's not looking for a begrudging, scared kind of obedience. He's looking for an obedience that says, I just want to honor God with my life. And as I honor God with my life, and as I am obedient to the things that he tells me to do and the way that he tells me to live, he blesses me and I have the best life ever. James 1.21 says, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Humbly accept the things that we're going to be going through in this letter of James as God's word. Let them take root in your life. Let them make a difference in your life. And there is a pull of the world to soft sell the things that the Bible teaches and the the life that, that God wants us to have. But God, through James, lays out this path to salvation and this path to obedience and this path to growth and this path to true fulfillment. Here's the next statement in your outline. James exposes my sin, which is really uncomfortable, but it's good news because it makes more room for Jesus. James shines a bright light into the darkest parts of our lives, but that's good news because it makes more room for Jesus. James 1.25 says, But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. There are all of these tests in James. The test of persevering during troubles, the, the test of where do, you, where do you point the finger when you're being tempted, the test of how you respond to God's word and its teaching, the test of being impartial in your relationships and how you treat other people, the, the test of, of, of the faith that you have and how you put it into action and words, the test of, of the words that come out of your mouth and, and the attitude in which you speak to others, the test in being humble, the test in, in worldly indulgence, the test in being dependent on God, the test of, of Patient endurance, the test of truthfulness, the test of prayerfulness, the test of having true faith. And this seems really, really harsh. But James, just like his brother before him, gives us a perfect balance of grace and truth. I don't think balance is really the right word here because I'm not talking about 50-50. It's perfect balance, 50% grace and 50% truth. I'm not talking about that. It is 100% grace and 100% truth. James shares with us the exact 100%, all of the, the grace that we so much need in our lives, but also all of the truth that we need to hear. 
This letter is written by James, the brother of Jesus, to the Christians that have been scattered during a time of persecution. And it's been written so that they can evaluate themselves and so that they can be led back. Remember, it's written to Christians, Christ's followers, but it's also being written so that they can be led back into a saving relationship with Jesus if they have strayed from him. Listen to the very end of this letter. Now, we'll get to it again in a few weeks, but listen to the end of this letter. James 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and and cover a multitude of sins. James is very clearly saying, that if your life isn't changing and if, if, you're not, if you're not walking close with God and if you're, if you're straying from Him, then, then there's danger here. And God wants to use His people to restore others. Guys, I, I apologize that I have tried to cover more than maybe I should have on a Sunday morning. And, and we're almost done, okay? But there's a diagram that I want you to see here. And, and I think that this so fitly, I think it fits really well, this theme of James. A lot of times we as Christians, we, we view the world and the people that we know as this circle, okay? The, the white circle in the middle, that's Jesus. And then the blue circle is, well, you're, that's salvation. And so you're either in or you're out. You're either in a relationship with Jesus or you're out of a relationship with Jesus. You're either, you're either Christian or you're not a Christian. A lot of times that's how we view it. Well, you're either in or you're out. And, and, and I mean, that's all, that's all true and that's all fine. But as we go through James, I want you to think of something else in addition to that. And that's the second part. I want you to think about a journey of becoming more like Jesus. And so in that second diagram, and the arrows represent movement, you can see that a lot of people, even if they're already in a saving relationship with Jesus, they continue to travel and to journey and to become more and more like Jesus as they come closer and closer to Him. But but you could also be a Christian in a saving relationship with Jesus and just kind of be floating there. You could be a Christian in a saving relationship with Jesus and be moving backwards, not becoming more and more like Jesus. And so as we travel through James, I want you to think about this self-evaluation, not, not for one spouse to evaluate the other spouse. I was reading this in James, and I just wanted to mention a couple of things. But for, but, but for you to evaluate yourself, okay? Am I walking closer to Christ? Am I becoming more and more like Him? That's Christian maturity, and that's our prayer for each and every one of you. And so write this application in your notes. And I hope that this phrase gives you a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement. God's expectation for me is progress, not perfection. If God expected perfection from you, he never would have had to send Jesus Christ to die for your sins. But God expects progress from you that little by little you are taking step by step closer to Jesus and becoming more and more like him. And James is going to expose this to us. I just want to tell you, I want to tell you something that happened to me this past week and, um, and, then, and then I'll pray and we'll be done. It was, it was five o'clock in the morning and I... Uh, I had left the house because I was going, I know a guy that can get paint really cheap and we've been doing some painting around here. So I was meeting him at Lowe's bright and early and, and I was already awake. So I went ahead and got out and, you know, 
And so I, I stopped at a convenience store to get my five-gallon bucket of Diet Coke for 69 cents. You know how that is, right? At stewardship. I mean, I feel like i got to get the big one because they're all the same price. And so I stopped to get that, and, and it's 5 a.m. And, and so I, I, I pull my Jeep in, I get out of my Jeep, and as I step out of my Jeep at 5 a.m., there's an older lady in a golf cart that comes pulling up beside of me, and she says, hello. And I got out, and I was like, Hi. I mean, I thought something was wrong. I thought she needed help. I've never fixed a golf cart before, but it could be fun to try. And so I'm thinking, you know, I I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I looked at her and I said, yeah, what, you know, yeah, yeah, hi. And she said, are you on your way to work? It's 5 a.m. Are you on your way to work? I said, sort of. She said, well, what time do you start? And I was like, what? She's like, when when do you need to get to work? I'm like, can I help you with something? Do Do you need something? And she made it very clear to me. This was an older woman in a golf cart. I don't know if I mentioned that. She made it very clear to me that she was looking for somebody that wanted to have a good time. <laughs> that, that wasn't in a hurry to get to work. Now, I do need to tell you that there was not one single moment of any temptation, okay? <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned she was an older woman in a golf cart. So I looked at her and I said, I said, ma'am, God loves you and I love you and I'd like to pray for you. I don't know what has troubled you so much in your life that you've turned to this kind of behavior, but there's another way for a better life. There's another path. And the truth is I didn't say any of that. I looked at her, I looked at her and I said, I don't want to have fun. No, I looked at her and I said, I said, no, thank you. And then I walked in to get my Diet Coke and I walked in the store. And while I'm in there, and it takes a few minutes to fill up a five-gallon bucket of Diet Coke. And while I'm in there and I'm getting this, those words were going through my head. I'm like, man, what an opportunity for me to maybe, you know, to maybe God brought me here at this, you know, maybe I was supposed to say something. And those words were going through my head the whole time. And so then when I walked out with my Diet Coke, she was gone. And my missed opportunity reminds me that I'm not as much like Jesus as I thought I was. I don't look like him as much as I hope to. And this letter of James is breathed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is penned by his servant, James. And this letter will bring you face to face with yourself, And you will constantly have an opportunity to evaluate your everyday behaviors and your motives and your attitudes, and you will evaluate them against godly standards. And I'm going to tell you right now, you will fall short. And your heart will either grow hard or your heart will grow soft. You will either respond with with a repentant enthusiasm that says, thank you, God, for an opportunity for me to learn and to grow and to become more like Jesus. Or you will kind of just shut down and withdraw. And I want you to know that this message is more than a list of a bunch of do's and don'ts. But it is a pathway to the best life filled with eternal joy, not, not temporary joy that leads to guilt and shame. And this is a message that every Christian needs to hear. It's the first letter of the New Testament. And it's a message that every Christian needs to carry to this entire town. So I pray that we don't miss any more opportunities. 
because we are surrounded with real people that have real troubles and we'll spend eternity in a real place called heaven or a real place called hell. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we love you and we thank you for an opportunity to be in your house, to listen to your word, to be inspired and encouraged, but at the same time to be, to be challenged in a real way. So I ask you to be with us. And right now, as we turn our hearts to you, that you would, uh, that you would just not give up on us, Lord, that you would just continue to tug at us to make us uncomfortable at the appropriate times, but then to put your loving spirit of peace and comfort on us when that is appropriate. But Lord, I pray that as we go through James, that you will do whatever it takes to get our attention and to inspire us to be more like you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.